Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, from a new permitting plan to a new housing fund, can government meet the housing challenge? Premier David Eby joins us. Plus, Ozempic, why has a diabetes drug become a viral weight loss hit leading to a shortage? And Ontario expands private delivery of public health care services. Is it time, BC Follow? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. British Columbia uh, today is adopting a one-stop shop approach to housing-related permits to help speed up the approval process to build more homes. The new permit- permitting strategy for housing, uh, according to government, means BC will have a cross-ministry team dedicated to prioritizing housing permits, which are currently handled by multiple ministries where approvals can take up to two years. Uh, Indigenous-led projects, BC housing applications, and multiple unit developments will be given priority according to the province. Premier David Eby made the announcement this morning. This work will be supported with an initial investment to hire 42 new full-time staff. Their jobs as the Housing Action Task Force will be to identify the highest priority housing, including Indigenous-led projects, BC housing applications, and multiple unit applications to steer them through the process quickly, efficiently, and responsibly. That is uh, Premier Eby, and he will be joining us at 4 o'clock to talk about today's announcement, but also his overall strategy. He announced his 100-day plan. He's about day 58, I believe, in that plan. Lots more to do, but he does have $5.7 billion to play with, and we'll we'll talk to him about uh, that issue at uh, 4.05. Now, we're going to talk to another gentleman uh, who knows the development, uh, how how challenging development can be, and that's Michael Geller, president of the Geller Group. He's an architect, he's a planner, and real estate consultant as well. Michael, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. In fact, if we get to chat every time David Eby makes a housing announcement, we'll be talking a lot to each other. Well, I think pretty much I'd have to make you co-host at that point, Michael. So we're very close to that because I think we're going to hear more and more from him over the next few weeks. So first of all, your thoughts on today's announcement. How much of an impact do you think it'll have? I think it'll have a very positive impact. I mean, David said, or the premier said one thing that I thought was quite interesting. He said, look, if we're going to ask municipalities to speed up approval processes, then the province needs to do it itself. And I think that's absolutely right. Indeed, uh, you and I chatted briefly about my Christmas card that promoted different ways municipalities could speed up the approvals. And a number of people said to me, that's great. But what about the province? Because what the your listeners don't know is very often on a major project you might be dealing with five or six different provincial ministries all reviewing the application taking different amounts of time and there is at the moment virtually no coordination between those various reviews what he's proposing is that effectively there's sort of a a one-stop shop that all the applications go through and while Vaughn Palmer and others have commented quite correctly that let's hope these individual reviews are also sped up, 
the fact that there's coordination, I think, is a very good thing. Uh, so for, the, for, for our listeners who are, who are sort of um, we're listening to the Premier today, listening to your comments, uh, many of them are going to say, wait a minute here, you know, Liberals promised to do things, the NDP is now promising to do things. How much of an impact can government actually have? I don't care if it's municipal or provincial, in <clears throat> regards to affordability, in regards to streamlining uh, perhaps the application process. Overall, how much of an impact do you think any level of government can actually have? I think they can have a huge impact. In fact, many of us believe that one of the reasons, the main reason why housing is so expensive is because it does take two, three, or four years to get a project through the approval process. And if you're financing that, uh, your listeners can start doing the calculation on you know, if it's a $10 million site, just what are the carrying costs on that at today's interest rates, combined with the additional insurance, the additional property taxes, etc., and all the uncertainty, because some of these projects go through the approval process for two or three years and then get turned down. Mm-hmm. And that significantly adds to the cost of housing. Mm-hmm. Now, Some people are going to say, well, if the cost comes down, does that mean the price will come down? And I would say yes, provided there's a lot of competition. Mm -hmm. Now, these projects or today's announcement really focuses on on bigger bigger projects or projects that are are, are very unique. Uh, A lot of other folks will say, look, uh, I would just want to get five homes built or 10 homes built or, you know, one or two homes built or even one single project built. How successful or how, um, how much of an impact do you think the provincial government can have in regards to speeding up processes at the municipal level, at the city hall level? Well, let's talk about the province first, Jazz. If there's a stream running through that site or adjacent to that site, Mm -hmm. then you cannot get the municipal approval until the provincial ministry has signed off on its streamside regulations. If you're fronting onto what might be a provincial highway, like Taylor Way in West Vancouver, in order to get approval for new development on Taylor Way, not only do you need West Van, you also need the provincial ministry of transportation and highways. So the point is... It's not just the major projects. A lot of projects have to get provincial approval in addition to the municipal approval. And sometimes, and I could speak from first-hand experience, Mm -hmm. I promised my client I would name them, but right now I have all the municipal approvals for project. I have about five provincial approvals, but I'm waiting for one more provincial approval in order to know if I'm going to get my final approval at the end of this month. So... This happens all the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but to my original question, I get where you're coming from, and I, I totally understand your point. It, it is multi-jurisdictional at times. Uh, but f- for the for the mom-and-pop builder who just deals with City Hall, do you think the government, the provincial government, can be successful in speeding up or uh, at the very least encouraging in some, de- some way, whether it's a carrot, whether it's a stick, for those processes to be sped up over the long term? I say definitely yes, because a lot of the delays right now occur because municipal politicians are reluctant to go against what they perceive as the community wishes and approve what might otherwise be a controversial project. However, if the politicians can say, look, we have certain housing targets we have to meet, or the province is going to come in, 
and they're going to approve this project. Let us collectively make that decision. And that just the threat of the province coming in, I think, is very significant. And I've already witnessed it in the district of West Vancouver, and I think it's going to happen in a lot of other municipalities, the one possible exception being Vancouver that very much runs its own show. But Vancouver, I think, especially the new council, is very committed to improving the process. Mm-hmm. How successful do you think? I mean, Mr. Eby's taken on a lot. He's talking about uh, you know, making sure our streets are safer, and, and that is a multi-jurisdictional challenge as well that requires the federal government to be involved uh, for, for a lot of issues. Uh, he's talking, taken on a lot of big files how successful do you think he, he, he's actually going to be when it comes to housing? Because housing can mean Michael Geller uh, isn't pulling his hair out of his head because he's, uh, he has to deal with a multi-jurisdictional development that is taking too long. It could be a mom-and-pop builder. It could be a, a buyer who says, look, prices have not come down whatsoever. I think Mr. Eby's been a failure. I mean, do you think he can be successful uh, in the bigger picture of tackling the housing challenges before the Lower Mainland? Or is it too much to expect from one person, even though they are the premier? I think it's too much to expect one person to be successful with each initiative. And some of these initiatives, I think, have greater chance of success than others. But overall, I think there's no doubt that he is truly committed to housing. It's uh, very much in his blood. And I think housing has become such a crisis. Just look how often you discuss housing issues on your show, Jazz, and on the other shows on CKNW. People are genuinely uh, concerned because the fact is, right now, there's so many people suffering. And uh, I think uh, overall, many of these initiatives will be positive. There's another one I'd like to see, which is there's all these older public housing projects. Now, we've seen a huge failure at Little Mountain, but there are many others where there's tremendous potential to add more more affordable housing. So there's a lot of things the province can do. I, I will uh, disclose that I've had a conversation with the Premier's chief of staff who contacted me just to start to explore different ideas. So I think they're they're reaching out to a lot of people and the fact is, today, one of the major developers in the province was part of the announcement. So he's working with the development community. And, uh, you know, we've had previous premiers who were very effective. Uh, Gordon Campbell was extremely effective when he was premier when it came to creating more affordable housing. So uh, I'm optimistic, and uh, I think others are too. Final question to you, and this is not uh, related to, to this week's announcement, but last week's announcement. We had the housing minister on talking about the $500 million affordable rental protection fund. How effective do you think that can be when you're up against large hedge funds, developers that are backed by a lot of folks, a lot of dollars. They have access to uh, a talent, uh, research. Uh, they can move sometimes quicker than government can. Uh, how effective do you think this rental protection fund, particularly uh, trying to help these nonprofits, how effective can it be up against the power and expertise of the market? As I said before, I think some of these initiatives are going to be more effective than others. Mm -hmm. I think today's initiative will be much more effective, ultimately, than the $500 million uh, announcement. Mm -hmm. I must confess it's well-intentioned. As uh, Goodman, the well-known real estate 
firm here said it's a good start, but I'm worried that that one could have some unintended consequences. Uh, oftentimes, when government starts to interfere too much in, in sort of the market reality, mm-hmm. things can happen. And uh, we can have a conversation another day about why rents have risen so much when the rent control limit is like 2%. And yet, as everybody is reporting, the average rents have gone up dramatically, more than 2%. So sometimes these interventions don't work. That one, uh, I'll give it the benefit of the doubt for the moment, but I am worried about unintended consequences there. Michael, look forward to having you on uh, soon again. Lots to talk about. Thank you so much for your time today. As always, my pleasure. Oh, kick trying to throw some right hands. McSorley tying him up. Now McSorley knocks off the helmet of Ojek. The fans are chanting, Gino, Gino. This is the Jazz Joe Hall Show on 980 CKNW. Welcome back to the show that chant, Gino, 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 dates back to the first game that Gino Ojek uh, handled the Vancouver Ducks in 1990. As many of you know, Mr. Ojik is a fan favorite. He passed away this weekend, having played uh, eight seasons with the Vancouver Canucks. The uh, news broke Sunday afternoon uh, when his sister posted a message on Facebook. Now, soon after uh, the 52-year-old's death was announced, uh, live during the broadcast of the Sunday Canucks game against the Carolina Hurricanes, um, many people, of course, posted on social media of uh, the impact uh, Mr. Ojek had on them and his tremendous uh, impact uh, on hockey here uh, in our province. Uh, this morning, former Vancouver Canuck uh, owner Arthur Griffiths uh, spoke to our colleague Simi Sarah about uh, his time with Gino Ojek. Take a listen. I remember his first game, and they only had a couple of fights. And uh, and I, you know, I was reminded yesterday, of course, from Stan Smeal, but uh, in an interview. But it, to 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 know that this guy just understood that that was what he's going to do, and the, the the even Chicago, I think they were, which is who it was against. I think they were just going, "Oh my goodness, what are we up to? What are we up against?" Um, and and his teammates, absolutely, and, and, you know, there's this bond that the '94 group. Of players had and 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 Gino is Gino exemplifies that they were a family they are a family uh, they they are all sad today but cherishing his memories and I think that um, like I said you know he could he could walk into a room in any room any any room uh, whatever it may be and, uh, people just fell in love with him. Uh, now earlier today, Global News spoke to Cliff Ronning, a Burnaby resident and a former teammate of Mr. Ojek, and uh, he was telling uh, the Global News audience, of course, that Mr. Ojek was loved by all. Gino was everybody's friend. Uh, he always had your back. You know, playing the game, he always felt protected. He was a hero to so many Indigenous kids. Uh, he was a true warrior. You know, we've lost one of our best, uh, Canuck Nation. And he, he was a type of guy that uh, was always there for you, no matter what, and never demanded anything. He was just a guy that not only the fans loved, but the players loved him, the coaches loved him. 
That was Cliff Ronning. Well, last year, uh, Ojik's uh, plaque was unveiled in the BC Sports Hall of Fame. As uh, Mr. Ojik made his way to the stage, those in attendance began chanting, Gino, 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 a chant, as I said, that dates back to his first game with the Canucks in 1990. Well, joining us now to discuss Gino Ojik's contribution to hockey uh, in this city is Jason Beck. Mr. Beck is a curator and facility director of the BC Sports Hall of Fame. Jason, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Jess. Your thoughts on Gino Ojik's uh, impact on the city and the game of hockey? Well, I mean, I mean, you're seeing it right now. You you really are. You see with all the tributes and the stories and and just the outpouring from uh, not just in BC but across Canada and around the world. Like, here's a guy that really made a a major impact, not just on the ice, but virtually with everybody that he came into contact with. Um, you know, there. I think there are some some individuals that are just maybe just a little bit more genuine or a little bit more caring than than uh, than the average person, and and uh, but you don't find them in in professional hockey or in roles like um, high profile roles like Gino was. So it's yeah, it, it's you're really seeing it. Um, it. The I guess the you know when I was trying to sum up his career last spring before the induction, I, I was struggling a little bit to encapsulate it all and I was at a Canucks game um, at Rogers Arena and he was introduced to the crowd just put on screen and like like you just said the, the crowd started chanting his name Gino 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 and that's when it hit me you know he's been retired for over 20 years and fans are still chanting his name at in, in packed arenas mm-hmm. you know most players when they're most NHL players, even stars, rarely have that happen when they're playing. And if they do, it's, it's for a brief period. But that shows the impact of, of what Gino had on the public here and Canucks fans and just in sport in general in BC. When did you first meet Gino Ojik? First time I met Gino was in 2017. Um, uh, actually, 2017 and 2018, when we were preparing the Indigenous Sport Gallery at the BC Sports Hall of Fame. We, we wanted to feature him in the gallery, which we did. And uh, also wanted to get his input on on some of the uh, some of the work that we were doing, and, and he he was really generous with his time and and uh, his opinions, and and then also uh, donated um, some uh, some memorabilia that mm-hmm. is on display uh, still in the hall. You know. So his memorabilia is there at the Sports Hall of Fame if people wanted to go go check it out. It's we actually still have his inductee display up from his induction last June in the Hall of Champions. So. Um, yeah, you, you definitely come down and, and, and see his display. He's he's also, um, he'll be honoured for, um, for uh, forever in the Hall of Champions with our other honoured members and, and honoured teams. So did you give him a tour of the of the Hall of Fame or of that specific display when uh, away from the public? Yeah, so when the day of the opening of the Indigenous Sport Gallery in, in September 2018, it was a, a really emotional event. There was several hundred um, people f- here for the opening from all over BC, m- uh, lots of Indigenous sport leaders and athletes and, and various communities. Like it really was a, a BC wide event. And Gino was, was uh, going to be there. And I thought he, he, I thought he actually had, was in the, was in the hall. Um, but I did, I didn't see him till he came walking up with his friend, Peter Leach, um, just after the opening ended. And I assumed he was coming back because the event had been so big and so packed. I thought maybe he wanted to take another look. 
Mm-hmm. And he said, well, we're, we're here. And I said, well, sorry, Tina, you, you're late. Uh, you missed it. And he, and he said, oh, I guess he just got the time mixed up. Mm-hmm. So I said, look, come on down. There's not many people left, but we can give you a tour of the gallery, which was great because he actually had the time and the space and, and kind of a quieter atmosphere to look at everything and take it all in. So he was seeing all these great Indigenous athletes and teams and stories and events that are profiled in, in the Indigenous Sport Gallery. But he was really quiet. And I, I was actually starting to get a little bit worried that he wasn't saying anything, um, that maybe he didn't like it or, or there was something wrong. And anyhow, Alison Mailer and I, the executive director, we finished the tour with him. And, and uh, he just kind of looked at us both and then stuck out his hand to, to both of us to, to shake and, and just said, this is reconciliation. And it was just like, it was such a powerful moment. And you could tell he was really moved by everything there. And um, from then on, he, again, he just continued supporting the hall after um, whenever we needed after that. Mm-hmm. I, and uh, thank you for sharing that story. Um, I think partially, I mean, what you've told me today, when you look at professional sports today, everything is uh, behind a wall. What you do see is carefully curated, is carefully um, sometimes you know looked over by PR professionals and and everything in between. There was a, and when you think about Gino, uh, he's more so um, you know much more genuine. Uh, and authentic, and sometimes you don't get to see that, whether it be professional sports or something else. Uh, he was different that way, wasn't he? he absolutely was. He, he, what you saw Gino on the ice and in person, whether you ran to him, you know, walking down the street or at a restaurant, um, everything about him was on the surface. And I love like authentic. That Gino was always Gino. He's always authentic, and I think that's why people just gravitated towards him. And he and he uh, just seemed to attract uh, everybody uh, because of that. And I was thinking exactly what you're saying, you know, how they're every, everybody is so careful with what they say in professional sports now and everything's curated and has to go through, you know, media relations and whatnot. You can actually take a lesson. Um, uh, everybody, media relations, everybody, the, the professional guys could take a lesson from someone like Gino on how to be more authentic and genuine and inject a little humor and your, and personality into things. I think we'd all, it'd be better for everybody. Um, you'd also see who, who, you know, the real personalities of people and like you did with Gino. Um, and I think that's, you know, why he was so loved. Yeah, no, absolutely. Jason, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to share, uh, your story about, uh, stories about Gino and on this very important day, because, um, there's lots of folks who appreciated everything that he did on and off the ice. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you, Jess. It's an honor. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. When David Eby was sworn in as premier, he promised an ambitious 100-day plan. And in no other file has that been more evident than uh, in housing. Today, Premier Abe announced his government will make it easier for developers and home builders to get approvals to build more homes in the province rather than requiring multiple provincial permit applications from different ministries with different processes to obtain approvals and uh, construction to build more homes. The province is creating a one-stop shop approach uh, to permitting. Now, this latest housing announcement comes after the 
the government introduced a new $500 million affordable rental protection fund. The money is earmarked to allow non-profit housing organizations to buy older rental buildings by providing them with one-time capital grants. Joining me now to discuss his government's housing strategy is Premier David Eby. Premier, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jeff. So uh, I know you, we don't have a lot of time, but I want to touch on today's announcement. How much of an impact do you think something like this will have actually on the pricing of homes and the ability to get homes out on the market as quickly as possible? Well, we're facing a remarkable circumstance in our province right now, Jazz. We, uh, last year, grew the fastest we've grown in the last 50 years in terms of population. And the first two quarters of this year, we're growing even faster. So we know that we need to bring every kind of housing, uh, including rental housing and so on. Uh, the province has a role to play here, especially in smaller communities. We have uh, permitting processes around water, around highways, access, and, and on and on. And, uh, and cities also have a role to play around permits, and we've had a lot of discussions about that process. Um, I've been calling on cities to speed up their processes. But it's only fair if we're pressing cities to speed up their processes that we look at ours, and that's what today's announcement was about. It's critical for us to get those uh, applications for new housing development through faster. The longer they take to get through, the higher the cost goes for people looking for a place to buy. Uh, And uh, we desperately need that housing to address the supply issue that we face in our province, which is part of the challenge that we face around housing. Uh, last week, uh, you announced, along with your housing minister, a $500 million rental fund. Um, do you think that's enough money for these nonprofits to actually compete with developers who have deeper pockets, uh, a significant amount of expertise uh, for the market itself? Do you think that's going to be enough to have an impact? Um, this is a, a unique program in Canada, to the best of my knowledge, Jeff. So the idea is, pretty straightforward when you're in a housing crisis you need to stop digging like when you're in a hole you need to stop digging Mm -hmm. put down the shovel and and one of the things that we're seeing is we're losing affordable rental housing so uh, tenants who are uh, living in an affordable place they see that for sale sign go up on their front lawn Uh, many of these older and smaller rental buildings and uh, a lot of people think about downtown vancouver or metro vancouver but this is across the province many of these for uh, couples, they're thinking about retiring. They want to sell the building, but they don't want to throw the tenants that they have long-term relationships with for the wolves to these big international investment funds uh, that are snapping up these buildings. And so they approach groups like Landlord BC and the Affordable Housing Associations and saying, hey, you, would you think about buying our building? That's how we bought Cardston Place in Burnaby. It was an aging co-op that was sold by a pension fund uh, that was concerned about the future for those tenants. Uh, and uh, we think that there are many sellers that will preferentially sell to nonprofits uh, and uh, protect the housing, but it also creates the opportunity for the nonprofit to leverage that purchase and buy more housing. This is something that's been used very successfully in the UK. There are some absolutely massive uh, nonprofit organizations uh, that run housing there and a whole other sector. We're looking at absolutely every opportunity to bring on more housing. Uh, speaking of looking at absolutely everything, we had the housing minister on this show last week and I asked him about the nonprofits and the the law and issue around first refusal to properties. He said they were looking at it, the first dibs that nonprofits would have on some of these properties. Uh, is that something you would consider and how long, if you if you were to bring it forward, how long do you think it would take before you would implement such a such legislation? 
Yeah, specifically, Jazz, we're worried about the trend that we're seeing uh, nationally and internationally of these large investment funds called REITs, mm-hmm. uh, real estate investment trusts that are buying up these properties. And uh, uh, I've asked Ravi, uh, the housing minister, Ravi Kailan, to do the policy work with his team on looking at a right of first refusal, which does two things. One is it certainly gives the nonprofits an opportunity, potentially, to buy those properties. But the second is it lets us know as government what's happening in the market. We have very little information about this kind of activity. And so that policy work is underway. It wouldn't be for this legislative session, uh, but for a future legislative session if we did decide to go in that direction. Do you think the government should play that much of a role in regards to the market itself? I understand setting up a rental fund, providing funding for nonprofit housing, but the right of, of nonprofits to have first dibs on a property, do you think that type of government intervention would be supported by the public? Well, the challenge that we're facing, Jazz, is uh, these large, unaccountable uh, investment funds, when they buy up these buildings, are creating a lot of costs for the public when those tenants are evicted. Uh, mm-hmm. Often uh, they'll end up homeless, or government will have to build replacement housing at the cost of uh, $300,000 or more per unit to build affordable housing. Uh, if we buy and protect it, it's much cheaper. It creates these leverage possibilities for more affordable housing. I believe very strongly that one of our responses to the housing crisis should be more government involvement in bringing on uh, additional affordable housing supply and protecting affordable housing that we have. But we can't do it alone. We need the private sector, too. That's what today's announcement about permitting was all about, to get those private sector developments out there as well. Uh, If you're building housing, uh, we're on your side. We need more housing and we need to get it done. And government's going to do what we can as well. Uh, you've demonstrated an ability to challenge the status quo uh, on a certain files. Uh, in the case of housing, uh, is Airbnb being looked at as well? I know it certainly provides a lot of flexibility for people in regards to visiting places and staying short term, but others have argued that it takes away housing stock for local residents. Uh, it's a huge challenge in major tourist cities like Barcelona and many other places. Will the government, when it comes to uh, you know looking at housing and the bigger housing file, is it looking at the issue of Airbnb, where Airbnb sits in this, uh, it sits within the housing challenges as well. Yeah, there are, there are a number of, uh, of initiatives we're looking at currently, Jazz, and, and the issue of short-term rentals is one of them. We know uh, that for many communities across the province, short-term rentals are part of the tourism ecosystem and are essential to the local economy. And in other parts of the province, they eat up rental housing that we really need for long-term renters. Uh, and uh, so the approach that we're looking at taking is one recommended to us by the municipality saying, look, give us the tools, uh, specifically the data from Airbnb and VRBO about who's actually renting short-term in our community so we can get a handle on how big this situation is. And our permitting system doesn't rely on having to try to figure out if somebody's renting short-term. We know that they're listing on Airbnb or VRBO, so we can require them to have a permit, and we can uh, manage it carefully as part of uh, part of our tourist industry, but also uh, make sure that it's not eating up housing that we need for, for example, tourism workers. Uh, final question to you, uh, $5.7 billion surplus. Uh, can we and should we expect more housing announcements uh, till the end of February with that type of surplus before you? And so... Uh, government has a responsibility in, in times like this that are challenging for many British Columbians. You know, people are seeing higher costs at the grocery store and in other areas of life, and, and some families and seniors and individuals are really struggling. And so 
you can certainly expect to see more from us in relation to housing affordability and cost of living generally as we support British Columbians in, in, uh, that are struggling in this challenging time. Premier, I know you've got a busy schedule and you've got to get to your next appointment. Thank you so much for your time to talk about this very important file. Thank you. Yeah, you bet, Jazz. Thanks for having me. Well, Ontario today uh, says it's significantly expanding the number and range of medical procedures performed in privately run clinics as the province deals with a surgical backlog made worse by the COVID-19 pandemic. The change will be introduced over three phases. The first will see surgical and diagnostic clinics perform an additional 14,000 cataract operations each year, which represents about 25% of the province's current wait list for the procedure. Uh, The second phase will mean more private clinics will be able to offer MRI and CT imaging, as well as colonoscopies. And the government intends that by 2024, the third phase will see hip and knee replacements performed for at-profit clinics. Now, Premier Ford stressed patients will never use their credit cards at the clinics, although he didn't directly answer questions about whether or not clinics would be allowed to upsell patients on associated elements of care. Take a listen to his comments. The way I can describe it, you know, you have a dam, you have a log jam. Are you going to just keep pouring the water uh, up against the logs, or are you going to reroute some of the water and take the pressure off, off the dam? Uh, you see what happens when the dam has too much water, it breaks. Now, while the changes are needed, uh, according to uh, uh, Premier Four, because the province's long surgery wait list, uh, the Premier says they will be kept in place permanently even after the backlog, uh, backlog is cleared. Now, the Canadian Union of Public Employees, the Ontario Nurses Association, the Ontario Public Service Employees Union, a variety of other public sector unions and private sector, including Unifor, say that the move will further starve public health care and instead that the province should be investing in the public health care system and implementing a staffing retention program. Well, what's this mean for other provinces, especially British Columbia and our healthcare system? Well, our next guest has challenged laws preventing patients from accessing private care when wait times are too long. Dr. Brian Day is the founder and current medical director of, uh, at the Canby Surgery Centre. Uh, Dr. Day, thank you for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. Your thoughts on the announcement from Premier Doug Ford today uh, as Ontario expands um, uh, private delivery of uh, public health care services. What are your thoughts on it? Well, I think it's a good thing. I think it, um, you know, it's one step, <laughs> well, small step in the right direction. He actually will save a lot of patients' grief uh, through this action. Uh, he'll even save lives, uh, strangely enough, people don't realize that, but this is um, this is something that governments across the country um, should be doing, and many are. And it's a it's a lesson that the world has already figured out many years ago that um, that these freestanding surgical centres are safer, have fewer complications, more efficient, and um, they're private. You know, the the big benefit for the public system is that these centers are built at no cost to the taxpayer. And the construction phases of these um, uh, centers creates jobs and economic activity. And if they're they're successful, they generate tax revenues for all levels of government, municipal, uh, provincial, and federal. And if they fail, the government doesn't suffer any losses. So so those those, uh, advantages are, are, are significant for the public system. 
Uh, are we doing any of that here in British Columbia? I know you uh, you've been very much involved and uh, quite vocal in regards to um, private cl- clinics and their help to the public system. Have we been doing some of what Ontario is now announcing that they're going to do? Yeah, well, we've been doing that for many years, and we were the uh, Canby Surgery Centre was the first clinic to to, to do that uh, back back in the nineties, even and. Uh, but um, but because of the legal shenanigans that have been going on, uh, Canby is excluded from that. But the other other private clinics are doing that and have been for some years. And the, the reason is, as I said, the, they provide safer safer care. You know, the um, complications. The, the BC College of Physicians and Surgeons um, keeps data on infections, and when you compare complications in a private Center to those in the public sector, they are 40 times less common. So you're 40 times less common to have a complication uh, going outside of a big public hospital than you are in these specialized centers. Hmm. Uh, do you think this will lead to a bigger, broader uh, conversation in and around uh, driving um, uh, innovation in our public system, or do you think there's going to be pushback eventually from the federal government in regards to saying to Ontario, you can't head in this direction? Oh, I don't think the federal government will... will I think the federal government probably endorses this, even, even though they may not be supportive of the... I mean, we have to bear in mind that mo, almost every family physician's office in, in Canada is a private clinic. I mean, it's not owned by the government. They're not owned by the government. They're operated privately, and they run as private centers. So this is this. There's nothing uh, extraordinary about this. And as I said, the world uh, community in healthcare uh, learned about this many over many years ago. We are behind behind the world. And and, and the other thing I should point out mm-hmm. is is you know the the those against against this. Um, this plan say oh well there's already a shortage of doctors and nurses well actually there is no shortage of specialists in surgeons there are actually 200 unemployed young orthopedic surgeons in in Canada right now who can't get hospital privileges because of rationed access in the public system and if you look at the OECD data Canada has an above average number of nurses it's just that they're leaving the toxic environment that has been created in in the health system, and actually, what this will do is draw them back into the workforce. Uh, in Ontario, for example, a single Detroit district employs over a thousand Ontario-based nurses who have left the public system because of frust- the frustrating frustrating state state of it. And of Canby Surgery's uh, 78 visiting surgeons, 23 have reported they would not be in Canada if it were not for the extra added OR time that we have provided um, when they've already used up the maximum that the government system will, will grant them. Now, Dr. Day, uh, I recall a few years ago, I was at a Helijet and I ran into a former healthcare minister whose name I won't mention, but we had a conversation uh, just talking about the present public system and how we fix it. And the minister at that time said, it's going to have to get worse before it gets better. Essentially, to me, what that meant was the public have to get much more vocal 
and saying that they want to see changes. Of course, want to protect the public system, but it, you have to drive innovation with it. If you look at what Premier Doug Ford has done today with this announcement, he is saying you will put down a BC version of a care card and it will all of this will be billed to the public system. Now, you can say it's private care, but at the end of the day, it's paid for from public taxes. So it's viewed as uh, public health care. Uh, some people may disagree with that. Why do you think there is such hesitancy in this province to continue down that road? Why do you think at its core, what do you think at its core is keeping the present system in place when we, are, when we should be challenging the present system and trying to drive innovation? Well, there are three things. One is um, there's a strong political lobby group of of, um, of the public sector unions who, um, in theory, are against private clinics, but but actually send us patients. Um, then the, then there is the uh, system of funding um, hospitals in Canada is is archaic and not you not we are the only OECD country that that ties, uh, that gives a, a hospital a, a lump sum amount every year. And therefore, the whole hierarchy of the hospital, uh, the chief financial officer and so on, they get their money up front every year. And, and then every patient that goes to the emergency or to, the, or to an op- for an operation is using up and consuming the revenue. Therefore, the last thing a successful CFO wants in a hospital is patients um, now every other country like so so New Zealand or Germany and when a patient goes to a public hospital the public system pays the hospital a fee so that patients become desirable to the clinic and if you don't treat patients well or you if you're if you're keeping people waiting a long time in the emergency department the patients and the revenue go somewhere else, even though it's public revenue. Now, having said that, I think it's important that the public realize that there is only one country on the planet where private health insurance uh, is illegal, and that's Canada. Private health insurance for for what governments define as medically necessary services. And um, and every other country in the world, including, including authoritarian communist countries, allow this competition. There is no, we have a monopoly and there is not a single monopoly that uh, serves the, uh, the end user or the client well. And we know that from, from every example you look at, whether it's a government monopoly or a private monopoly, they are not good for the consumer of the product or the service. And, uh, you know, we, our local uh, example in BC is that we have ICBC is the sole monopoly provider of health of car insurance, and we are the most expensive province in the country to buy car insurance. It, it's it's just a, a simple elementary economics. Where do we go from here in your mind? Do you think even with um, Premier Ford's announcement today, we'll be muddling along with this system where we know it has to go through some deep structural changes? But whether, as based on your examples, we're hesitant to do so, or do you think we're on the path towards those fundamental changes that need to happen? Well, you know, once one of the problems is, the, as you probably know, um, 
It was the NDP. We, we talk about this doctor shortage, and don't get me wrong, there is a shortage of family doctors. I said there wasn't a shortage of surgeons, but there is a family doctors. That shortage was created by the NDP government of the 90s that um, had a royal commission, the Seton Commission, and they accepted its findings, and they persuaded the, the whole country, actually, to cut back medical school intake by up to 30% across the country. Then they complained that now there's a shortage of doctors. It's a shortage that, that was created by, by the system. And the, the theory at that time was that too many doctors and too many nurses were treating too many patients, and, and that was costing the system too much money. And uh, so they closed nursing schools. You know, the hospitals used to all have big nursing schools. They closed um, medical schools. And currently, 3,500 young Canadians are in foreign medical schools. And they face barriers in coming back because the provincial colleges make it so difficult, uh, even though they may be well-qualified uh, students in uh, graduating from Australia or, or, or Ireland or other countries. They have a barrier coming back because the 13 provincial colleges that out operate as, as separate bureaucracies um, uh, block them. They, there should just be one college that, uh, that, that looks after credentialing doctors in Canada and a single license across the country. But private health insurance um, will benefit the public system. That's been shown up the Canadian Institute for Health Information through the Commonwealth Fund recently ranked um, Canada, alongside nine other countries that have universal health care. We were the most expensive. We were the last in equity, the last in access. And, um, and then the Stats Canada, these are all government data. Stats Canada has come out with the um, statement that the worst access and the worst health, health outcomes in Canada are in, is in the lower socioeconomic groups. It's doing the opposite of what it was supposed to do. Dr. Day, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. I know this is an ongoing conversation, and um, we look forward to speaking to you in the future as well. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Jack. As of this month, 400,000 British Columbians who have type 2 diabetes have better access to Ozempic, a drug that lowers blood sugar levels and can reduce body weight after Pharmacare extended the coverage of the drug earlier this month. Now, the semi-glutide injection has been um, moved forward from a third-line treatment to a second-line one, meaning type 2 diabetes patients uh, will still need to try and fail at a first-line treatment to qualify for coverage. One-shot costs around $200 and can last up to six weeks uh, depending on a person's dosage. Now, the Ministry of Health has said the expanded coverage only applies to type 2 diabetes patients not for weight loss hopefuls. Uh, now, as more and more people have been hearing about the side effects of the weight loss, some doctors in the U.S. have been prescribing the drug as an off-label, uh, for off-label use. That's the unapproved use of an approved drug for weight loss in those without diabetes. Now, Ozempic has not been approved by the FDA as a weight loss drug, but it has been described as uh, Hollywood's worst-kept secret. It's become increasingly popular due to its weight loss results, hyped even by billionaire Elon Musk, uh, even uh, social media uh, darlings like Kim Kardashian and uh, Hollywood actors like Mindy Kaling, who said she lost 65 pounds. Um, it is leading to people wanting to try Ozempic, not for the core issue, which is diabetes, but also, but mostly for the weight loss. It's causing a shortage 
even though it's really meant with uh, meant for use in patients with type 2 diabetes. Joining me now is Dr. Brendan Narang. He's a family physician and Global News CKNW medical contributor. Dr. Narang, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Good afternoon, Jazz. Uh, before we get to the issue of weight loss, how effective is Ozempic uh, to deal with the specific issue of type 2 diabetes? How effective is it? It, it's a good medication definitely to help with um, um, uh, diabetes control. We don't use it as a first-line treatment for diabetes. Um, first-line is always looking at our lifestyle measures. Um, are we uh, controlling the amount of sugars and um, carbohydrates we're putting into our body? Are we exercising enough? And there's metformin. There used to be other medications which we had to use second-line to get coverage, uh, but recently, um, in the past few weeks, um, semaglutide, which is Ozempic, has now gotten approved um, as a second-line treatment, so it should give uh, more access to patients where it can ben- help um, them benefit. So in the vast majority of people that do take Ozempic, obviously, are, dealing, are, are taking it for diabetes, but 80% of those, to my understanding, are also people living uh, that deal with the issue of being overweight, so it helps in that context as well. Yeah, so um, being overweight goes hand in hand with having type 2 diabetes. Um, the more extra weight we have on, um, the ex- the harder it becomes um, for our insulin to work effectively on our body. And so our pancreas puts up more insulin um, to try to get it to work better. And then insulin itself makes us put on weight. And so it can you can get into a very vicious cycle. And so that's why, um, although Ozempic primarily was studied um, as a diabetes medication, there has been evidence of it being helpful for uh, weight loss as well. And the drug named semaglutide now has two products, one which is Ozempic for diabetes, one which is a Wegovi, which is specifically for uh, weight loss. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously with this issue of Ozempic and weight loss, uh, some doctors in the U.S. have been prescribing uh, it for off-label use, off-label use, which is, I guess, the which is the unapproved use of an approved drug. Uh, How concerned should we? Because in the United States, my understanding is there is a shortage of Ozempic uh, for those dealing with diabetes because people have now figured out, look, it's good for weight loss. How, How concerned should we be here in British Columbia in regards to that? Yeah, so there are multiple levels of why I would be concerned about this. One, why it has it gotten um, so popular so quickly is because it's an internet trend, a TikTok trend specifically. Um, and so I think anything that becomes a trend, we need to make sure, uh, does that reflect uh, what the evidence shows? And is that the most appropriate use of it? Also knowing their scarcity of resources. So the shortage um, has definitely been there in the States. It's also been in Australia where I think they said they weren't going to get any more for six months. And that has put worldwide pressures um, on the manufacturer um, to actually um, um, in, uh, increase production. And so in, here in BC, um, while it, we haven't been faced with a shortage from what I understand, we know that there have been people um, coming up from America um, to fill those prescriptions here, which then may have <coughs> an impact on our patients who do need it for their diabetes care. So I think what we need to look at is that while... Um, it may be uh, uh, have benefit for this uh, weight loss part of it. Um, that is not the primary use for it. Um, so uh, as anything, if it is something you're interested in, you should be speaking with your physician, nurse practitioner um, to see one, um, is it affordable for you? Is it useful for you? And are the side effects tolerable for you before you um, kind of convince yourself based on what you see on TikTok that it's the best solution for you. Is that what you would tell your patients if they came in, look, they're going to see things on social media and say, look, 
uh, I've heard that Elon Musk is using it. Uh, he said that on Twitter that he is, he's using it as part of uh, his weight loss uh, regimen. Uh, comedians like Mindy Kaling, I think, have said on online that they've lost 60 pounds. I think the Kardashians are also being mentioned. But if one of your patients was coming into your office saying, look, I've heard all of this, uh, I'm struggling with weight loss, and they may not have diabetes, what would you tell them? What kind of advice would you give them? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that um, part of it is uh, we, whenever we see someone um, doing something on social media, um, we need to look back, okay, is this something that's sustainable too? So um, uh, with the medications for um, a lot of these uh, um, weight loss medications, they um, the results that are touted are usually kind of some of them are 68 weeks, some of them are 72 weeks. Usually they're within one and a half to two years. Um, there's a lot of things that can help people lose weight within that one and a half to two yard benchmark. But historically, um, it, it doesn't go beyond that or to keep it going, you need to stay on it. So I think what we need to look at, yeah, it could help right now if the cost is there and it's safe. Sure, we can look into it as a reasonable option, but we should be also looking at what else, like we talk about the foundationals for weight loss. There's a lot of other parts of it. What's your relationship to food? Um, what is your activity? What is your stress? What is your sleep like? And how much uh, water are you taking? And those are all fundamental things that I would look at before jumping to a medication. And then I'd be looking at, okay, are there changes we can make in your day-to-day -day life that might help you? And what is the goal? Um, because the goal should be independent of the, the you know, X amount of weight lost, um, whatever that might be for a patient. It should be, are we living a lifestyle that's conducive to us having um, a, a healthier life going forward? And that might be independent of the number on the scale. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Dr. Narang, thank you so much. I was just fascinated uh, seeing so many articles, but also this sort of popping up on social media. And when you hear of celebrities... Uh, even the Variety magazine, which, you know, covers Hollywood. But I, I saw an article the other day that Hollywood's worst kept secret, and it's Ozempic, which, Ozempic, sorry, and I didn't realize, yeah. Yeah. you know, it, it had gotten that yeah. further and deeper into pop culture. And it's quite fascinating, really. Yeah, and thanks for having me. Happy to talk about it. And one thing just so we should live, it's, it's a weekly injection. So yep. these people might be committing themselves to an injection every week for, you know, the rest of their lives. And so that's another consideration. We have to look long-term. But I mean, the end of the day, like, with what you're saying, uh, you know, you, these fads come along and as you say, uh, you need an injection once a week and you need to continue doing it for a very, very long time when in that very same period, you can be eating better, you could be exercising, you have to make lifestyle choices, which are tougher uh, and uh, more difficult for folks sometimes. Uh, but you can do a lot of the same things without having to, to rely on an expensive inj injection once a week. Yeah. yeah, and it doesn't need to be mutually exclusive. Some people will be doing all the right things, and I think it's important to recognize that people are also, by the time they look at these, um, they have, they've tried things. They've, they've looked at what they can do, um, and they're trying their hardest. But for some people, there is... Um, and this is like what the newer learning about obesity is, that there is a, a hormonal um, and neurological um, component to it where your body is also set at a certain weight and it's going to tell you um, um, to keep staying at that. So it's going to tell your body that it wants to be set at that. So these medications absolutely have a role, but we want to make sure it's being guided by someone who has specialty in um, obesity and weight loss to make sure that we're not missing the foundational fundamental pieces before getting to that step. Dr. Narang, thank you for your time today. Really appreciate it. No worries. Take care. Have a great day.
Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.